today we're going to be kind of summarizing this entire series, looking at the life of Joseph, but really we're paying attention to the detours of Joseph's life. These closed doors, closed doors, that word closed is one of the most heartbreaking words in the English language, right? Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? Deferred, closed, right? Closed is this heartbreaking, sad term. For, for many of us, it means to be shut out, to be excluded in some way, to be unwelcome. For others, the opportunity, whatever it was, has been denied to them. Their aspirations have reduced to dust. For some people, closed doors might feel permanent, definitive, final. I want you to just think about your life. How many closed doors have you experienced? How many jobs have been closed to you? The opportunity has shut. Maybe you lost it. Maybe you never got an opportunity to start it. How many pregnancies have you lost? Closed doors in front of you. How many luxuries have been just out of reach? How many joys have you never experienced because of closed doors? If you go down the list of your life, it's likely quite a few or at least enough that you can count up because that's life. All of us experience it, many the same way, just different variations. Life contains closed doors, barriers that in the moment feel almost impossible for us to overcome. How do I get to the other side of this? And we'll try everything. We'll try putting our best foot forward. We'll try buying everything to make it a lot easier. We'll try surrounding ourselves with people we love. We'll even try praying and giving it to God genuinely. And yet, there still seem to be closed doors. We fall short of our goals. So what if I told you that sometimes God puts closed doors in our life. I'm going to call them buts, B-U-T's. He puts buts in our life to redirect us to something greater, to something better. Now that word but, B-U-T, it may seem small. It is small. It's only three letters. And yet, it's one of the most powerful words in the English language. It derives the idea of a detour. Right? It can represent a shift in direction, a change in perspective. If you have the right mind, it's even a new opportunity. When we face these closed doors, we can feel discouraged, we can feel defeated, but God's buts, and this is the point of this sermon, God's buts, we have to remember, are leading us to something greater that God needs to get us to. That the detour might actually be the journey of choice. That we shouldn't, as Tracy said in our first sermon, we shouldn't be looking for moments to turn back to what we used to know, but instead we should be walking faithfully in the road that God has put us. And this happens early in our life, these but moments, these opportunities that God kind of shifts our road. It begins whenever we're little, or maybe our kids were little. Many of you probably remember playing t-ball or some other sport. You remember your kids growing up playing these sports, and 
Whenever it's your turn to play t-ball, you are so excited. You get your uniform, you get your glove, you get your bat. You're throwing the ball with dad in the yard for weeks. You go and try out with the team, but there's not enough spots on the team for you, for your boy. And you get to experience the pain of a no or being left out pretty early on. But this doesn't just stop when we're children. Maybe you have been dreaming of the moment that you would be married. Maybe you've been dreaming since you were 13 years old of being surrounded by your family, of being just in a beautiful atmosphere with beautiful people, looking your best with the one that you want to give your life to, but those opportunities keep end up being closed doors. Maybe you've hit your 40s. You've taken stock of your life. You decided, you know what? I'm going to go all in with this company. I'm, I'm tired of bouncing around. So you give it your all. You work late nights. You give up your vacations. You, you uh, cut back on some other things in your life to give your company your all. But you get passed up for the promotion. You don't get the raise. You get let go despite all that you've given to them. Or... Maybe all of your career doors have been opened. Maybe your relationships have been smooth. Maybe you have made every single sport team that you have tried out on, but you have been given the news that you or somebody you love has a terminal illness. And all of a sudden, all your doors begin to close. In the sermon, we are going to explore the power of but, B-U-T, of detours, how they can actually transform your life if you have the right perspective of what God could be doing in it. There is power in the detour. And what I want to answer for us is how do we remain faithful? How do I remain faithful when all I seem to be getting are closed doors in my path? When God seems to constantly be shifting me to something else, and we're going to use the, uh, the life of Joseph and the many detours he had to understand how did Joseph do it? How did Joseph remain faithful despite all of the closed doors? So if you're writing things down, we're going to go through three phases of Joseph's life, and I'm going to give you the but in his life. And then after we move through those three phases, we're going to do the bottom line, which is going to answer that big question, how did Joseph actually do it? You see, first, Joseph was obedient, but he was despised. This began as early as 17 years old for Joseph. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He grew up in a fairly dysfunctional family, but despite all of that, he was faithful to God. He showed his loyalty to God, and God actually awarded him for it and gave him visions of what he would do in Joseph's life. Now, I think Joseph was a little immature with how he interpreted that and then let people know about it. But nonetheless, God gave him this vision. And so he took this and began gloating it over his family members, over his father, his mother, his, his brothers, and eventually his brother's grow hatred in their heart. His dad kind of throws fuel on the fire and ornates him with a coat and calls him his favorite. 
which fuels even more hatred in the brothers. And then finally they act on that hatred and he's sold as a slave. Now here is what I want you to know. And we're going to move fast through this, this portion of Joseph's life. Is that despite how he handled and the gloating of the dream, or at least the telling, you don't call it gloating, the telling of the dream, Joseph didn't deserve the treatment that he received. And even if he didn't deserve the treatment, even if you would say, okay, that makes sense, what is Joseph thinking? He's thinking, I was betrayed by my own family, and the vision said my family would be bowing down to me, that I would be serving them in some capacity, but I'm being sold into slavery. So now it's not just a betrayal of his family. Could Joseph have been feeling a betrayal from God himself? I was supposed to be the one that you protected, but I obeyed, but I was despised and everything was taken from me. My home, my inheritance. Can you even fathom being betrayed by your own family? Some of you can. You actually know what that feeling is like. It's like being stabbed in the back by somebody that you thought you could trust. In fact, that's why they call it stabbed in the back, right? Because your eyes are set on what you think are your enemies, not on the people who are supposed to be protecting you. I would dare say that betrayal is one of the most extreme and devastating emotions that we can experience next to grief as human beings. I once heard a quote say that grief and betrayal are like paper cuts on the soul. That initial cut, it hurts. But then every time we move and we shift, and every time we think it's gone away, it rears its painful head once again. I can only imagine Joseph felt grief and betrayal for a while. Now, this isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but I think it's important for us to stop here and talk about forgiveness. Because many of us, myself included, we hold on to our forgiveness. But what we're learning from Joseph, what we can learn really quickly from Joseph's story is that forgiveness never depends on somebody else. You see what I'm saying? Like, no, Forgiveness doesn't have a cost that somebody has to spend in order to receive forgiveness. Otherwise, man, we would be in debt, wouldn't we? We are in debt of the forgiveness that we don't deserve, and yet we have still received it. Nowhere in Joseph's story do his brothers apologize for what they did to him. Nor did Joseph require it to extend his forgiveness to them. Forgiveness is not something that's dependent on other people. It is solely rest inside of you. Even in our darkest hours, we have to turn to God who knows what it's like to be deceived by the people he thought he could trust. Jesus has the power in him to forgive the things in me so that I can forgive them. And I have to trust that God, that Jesus has the power to do everything I need him to do inside of me. And then trust that I can now, with his courage and his strength, forgive other people. Joseph was obedient, but he was despised. He chose to forgive regardless. Second one, Joseph was honorable, but tarnished. We talked about this a little bit last week. We're going to fast forward to another portion of Joseph's life. Eleven years later, 
He was honorable, but he was vilified. He's 28 years old. He's working in Potiphar's house. This is a higher up in the Egyptian courts. And somewhere along the, along the way, Joseph determined if life gives you lemons, there it is, thank you, make lemonade, right? It wasn't a trick, right? Just life gives you lemon, do something with it. I don't know where Joseph learned this. I don't know if he learned it from his father Israel, from his brothers, from working. I don't know. But Joseph was determined to work and to work hard. We learn all about this in Genesis 39. So actually, if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and flip over to Genesis 39 because we're going to slow the clock down just a little bit here in the second phase of Joseph's life. So we know... Joseph was respectful. We know he worked with integrity, with sincerity, with industry, and God blessed it. God blessed everything that Joseph did, and Potiphar began to take note of these blessings, and despite the detour, God was with Joseph, and he is risen to a higher position in the household. And we get to this part in the story, and we're feeling the rightness of Joseph's situation. This well-deserved, like finally Joseph is getting what he deserved in the best of ways. It's like he he has walked faithful with God this whole time. He's never questioned what God was doing in his life. He continued to work with integrity despite his situation. And now it's being paid back to him. Even when his integrity was put to the test, he shone through. We saw this last week. Potiphar's wife sets out to make Joseph her newest conquest. According to the Bible, passion gripped this woman so strongly that she threw all prudence to the wind, immediately urges Joseph to come to bed with her. Now this blatant forwardness, one could readily imagine that her her, her approaches got even more audacious and seductive every time Joseph denied her. But he kept denying her until finally she devises a trap to catch Joseph off guard. She invites Joseph to the house. She has all of the servants lead, leave. And Joseph unknowingly walks right into her trap. And with every, possibility, every possible justification for getting intimate with this woman, screaming in his head and in his 28-year-old male body, Joseph opted to follow God instead. Really think about that. He raced from her grip, literally wiggled out of her grip so his coat is still in her hand. I think when Paul says flee from temptation, he's thinking of Joseph in the back of his mind. I mean, Joseph literally gets out of this situation as fast as he can and tries to honor God. He literally says, I, why, would I disregard, why would I dishonor God by this? Like that's the only thing in his mind and he flees from it. And nobody can help admire a guy who's so intent on praising God in his body that he denied the one thing that he had no realistic possibility of ever experiencing in his lifetime. He denied it. I choose God over that thing. But the story continues. Let's slow down a little bit. Let's pick it up in chapter Genesis 39, verse 13. 
says when she, Potiphar's wife, saw what Joseph, that Joseph had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Hey, y'all come back in now. Look, she said to them, holding up this coat, this Hebrew, you can feel the venom in her voice, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Verse 16 says she then takes this coat and she hangs it up so the master will see it whenever he arrives. Right? And, and then she basically tells, verse 17, then she told the story, that Hebrew slave that you brought to us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. And when the master heard all of this, rightfully, he was angry, uh, and he throws Joseph in a prison, uh, in a jail where all the king captives are. Now, we don't know much of the details of this jail situation. We know it's not very good. Uh, Psalm 105.18 says, Joseph bruised his feet with shackles, and his neck was bound with an iron collar. So not a great situation. Joseph had done everything right again. He should have been commended for his virtue. While Potiphar's wife should have been chastised for her immoral behavior, but instead the defenseless Joseph is the one who is crushed under wickedness and injustice. I want you to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment. For the second time in his life, Joseph had done everything right. He had been faithful. He had lived with integrity. He had lived with good character. He worked hard. And yet, doors kept closing in Joseph's face. He kept getting the raw end of the deal. And whenever we face this, I mean, the shackles were probably heavy, but the blatant unfairness of this all seems to be weighing heavily, most heavily on him right now. I mean, it's during these moments, these moments that we have in our life, that we see in our culture, that our mind shouts against the injustice and the wickedness that exists in the world. It is not fair to be penalized for something we didn't do. That is a basic human understanding about right and wrong, about justice and injustice. It's ingrained in us. It's in our DNA. God has placed it in us to know when something is fair and not fair. You don't have to teach a child that. They just know. Speaking of child, Arlo has, uh, he, his language is just exploding right now. He's just, he's literally like a macaw parrot. You say something to him, he just repeats it back to you, which is kind of cool. Just be mindful that he'll do it to you. So be mindful what you say around him because he'll catch you off guard. So he, he's been doing this thing now where he'll get a cut or a bruise or something. He'll come up and he'll say, ouch, boo-boo. And that's his like universal word for like, I'm hurting somewhere, boo-boo. So he goes to daycare, which is like a little war, battlefront war. You know, every time he goes to school, they're all battling with each other. And then they come home and he, he usually has some new cut, some new bruise, right? We're used to that. Except just recently, he added to his description. He'd come, he'd have like a cut on his arm. And he'd say, ouch, boo-boo, Owen. Now, Owen is one of his classmates. So he'd point and say, ouch, boo-boo, Owen. 
We're like, oh, it's all right, buddy. It was probably an accident. The next day, not kidding. He comes. He has a bruise on his leg. We say, hey, buddy, what's up? Oh, ouch, boo-boo, Owen. And we're thinking, all right. I don't know who this Owen kid is, but this kid is trouble. Right. You know, I'm I'm going into like dad mode. Luckily, it's Friday, so I can't like go and figure it out then. It's like, but we're going to have a tough Monday. We're going in and we're going to talk to this. Oh, we're going to sit there, too. I don't know what I'm thinking, but we're going to sit down and we're going to work this out like civilized people. Right. Weekend comes. It's Saturday. He's out playing in the yard. He trips on a rock, scrapes his knee. He comes running up. Oh, buddy, what's wrong? Ouch. Boo boo. Owen. Oh, okay, I got you. Right? It's not fair to be penalized for something you didn't do. A much more extreme version of this, Nelson Mandela, we've talked about him before, spoke up against a corrupt government and suffered 27 years of harsh labor prison, separated from his family and his loved ones. I've been to the jail cell. It's literally the size of this small stage up here. 27 years, that was his life. And from my readings and my understanding of Mandela, there wasn't a drop of hatred when he walked out of that cell. Only forgiveness flowed from his heart. How? How? How does someone like, one like Mandela, how does someone like Joseph, despite all the doors being shut, seem to constantly be looking at God? Joseph was obedient but despised. He was honorable but he was tarnished. Last one. Joseph was used by God, but he was forgotten. He was forgotten. Here's what we know about that jail cell. We know God was there with him. That's an important point. We need to stop and just rest there. In all of these moments of Joseph's life, God is still present. He's still working. But while Joseph was there in prison, the end of verse 20 says, The Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So this is looking pretty good for Joseph. Again, life gives you lemons. He's making lemonade. He's making the best. Eventually, he works his way up where he is now over the other prisoners in this jail. We're told, and this is all leading us to chapter 40, which is our main text this morning. But we're told that these other prisoners are having these dreams, these nightmares. They're staying up at night because they're having these strange nightmares and they don't know what to do with them. Luckily for them, Joseph has this gift of being able to interpret the dreams. So he says, hey, God has given you this and he's given me this ability. Let's team up and I'll tell you what these dreams are. Let me know them. Now, we're not going to go through those dreams. You can read about the first one in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 40. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Joseph essentially says, hey, after three days, there's two prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker. To the cupbearer, he says, hey, after three days, you're going to be right back at at, uh, Pharaoh's side. You're going to be reinstated. You'll be back at work, and it's going to be great. Three days, things are going to look good for you. And I want you to pay attention to what he says. Verse 14 of chapter 40. So Joseph just gave him this good news. Verse 14 of chapter 40 says, But when all goes well with you, to the cupbearer, hey, when it all works out for you, because it's going to, remember me, Joseph, and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. 
I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. Help me out, right? I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And this cupbearer's thinking, I got you, man. I, cool, like, you help me. I have no reason not to help you. Whenever I get reinstated, like you say I'm going to, I'll help you out. And Joseph puts his trust in this other person. Then there's a scene with the baker who gets an interpretation of his dream. Radically different outcome. <laughs> uh, feel sorry for the baker. He says, hey, after three days, you're going to get the can. Sorry. Three days pass. And all that Joseph interpreted come to fruition. The cupbearer is ranked back up. He's released. He's back at Pharaoh's side. The, the baker is killed. And here we are. And then we get to Genesis 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, the one who was just released, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. I imagine that the burden of Joseph's work was extremely light those first couple of days. I mean, in the back of his mind, I imagine Joseph's thinking, any day now. The cupbearer's gone. I've given him my message. I'm trusting him to deliver. Any day now, my circumstances are going to change. Right? If I know anything about, about God is that he opens doors. He, he leads the righteous people on the right path. Right? He's going to deliver me to where I need to be any day now. This door is going to open up. The message is going to get to Pharaoh. Any day now, my life is going to completely turn around. And any day, turn into any week. Any week now. It's going to happen. And any week, turn into any month. Any month now, maybe things got held up in the process, but God is going to deliver me any day now and any month turned into any year. Chapter 41, verse 1, two years later, which doesn't seem like a very long time unless you're in the middle of those two years. Scholar F.B. Meyer puts our questions, this is, these are my questions, into Joseph's mind. Like if I was in this situation with Joseph, what would I have been thinking? Maybe something like this. Is it any use then being good? Could there be any truth in what my father taught me of good coming to the good and evil to the bad? Is there a God that judges righteously in the earth? Because I don't see him. I'm in this dungeon. I've done everything right. Life seems to be, I thought I was doing well. I thought that God was giving me an open door. And then F.B. Meyer turns to us, the reader, and he says, you who have been misunderstood, who have sown seeds of holiness and love to reap nothing but disappointment, loss, suffering, and hate. Well, you know something of what Joseph felt in that wretched dungeon We've all heard the stories of women who could 
lift a car off of their husband who's pinned under it in a wreck, right? We've heard these stories of this incredible strength in adrenaline. But then after the, the thing is done, they'll like collapse in exhaustion, right? Their body can only handle it for so long, for so much. I think there's a spiritual counterpart to that physical phenomenon. Like in the wake of a terrible event, a lot of Christian fires began igniting, right? After 9-11, many of you remember, I was too young to really remember this, but a lot of you remember churches were full, weren't they? Right? In the, in the midst of tragedy, all of the fires are lit and people are ready, but then with the constant view, the dwindling of numbers in churches, the empty pews around us, our neighborhoods becoming less and less like us, that don't believe like us, it becomes exhausting. The pain of the world is all around us, and even the best Christians can break down in tears of confusion. How did Joseph endure without losing faith in God? How did he do it? How did he avoid the conclusion that God was just toying with him? That God was just raising his hope so that he could crush them? How did Joseph keep from becoming a bitter vengeful, angry man as he faced the prospect of dying in a dungeon in a foreign country for something he never did. How? And how do we? How do we remain faithful when the closed doors keep slamming in our face? If you're writing things down, I want you to write this down. It's because Joseph knew detours were not his final destination. Joseph's life in the book of Genesis is marked by unexpected twists and turns. They're all over the place, which makes the story very inviting to read because it's exciting, things are happening, but it's also very real to read of doors shutting in faces. I mean, he's sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused of a crime that he literally ran from, that he had no part in. He was imprisoned for years for it and then was forgotten by somebody he thought he could trust. And throughout all of it, Joseph remained, maintained a strong faith in God and a belief that detours were not his final destination. He kept the conviction that God reigns over every single detail of his life, from the greatest moments all the way down to the smallest moments. And it's amazing to me that the most common means that people use to solve the suffering problem of the world never crossed Joseph's mind. I'll explain what I mean, because this is something I am working through right now. If I can be open, honest with you guys, this is a subject I struggle with about the existence of suffering and where does God play into that suffering. And after studying Joseph's life, I'm taking, there's a but moment, there's a detour moment. I'm, I'm having to lean a little bit on a different leg than I normally lean on and I'm wrestling through it. Maybe some of you are with me, maybe some of you have, are way ahead of me and you, you've already been through this and that's great. But never once did Joseph not think that God couldn't handle what he was facing. But it seems my first instinct, when tragedy hits, when an explosion in the world happens, when a wreck happens, when death and, and disaster plague people I know or just the world in general, 
my first instinct is to say something like, well, God couldn't have willed that sickness. He didn't make that explosion happen. That wreck wasn't a part of his plan. He wasn't in control of that part of existence. I am guilty of creating exemption clauses for what I think protect God from the bad things that happen in the world as if God needs protecting. It's like, no, 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 no. Keep those bad, evil things away from God. He didn't do that. That's your problem. That's not God's problem. As if I'm a shield that needs to protect him. As if God can rest on my shoulders. But all through Joseph's experience, there is no indication that he followed that line of thinking. Instead, by example and by his own words, he held to the conviction that God reigns over every part of his life. God reigns. I think there's a banner that hangs over Joseph's life that has a New Testament passage. It's actually Paul's words, who was martyred himself, who had a lot of doors closed to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I have it up here. And we know, there's a squeak. There we go. And we know that for those who love God, all things, church, say all things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, that verse means absolutely nothing if God is not in absolute control over the events and the details of our lives. All things. His rule over the details of my life, that has to be the foundation of my hope. His rule and reign over the details of my life is the assurance I have that justice will have the last word. His reign over every detail of my life is the promise I have that this life cannot compare to the final destination, to the road that's coming, to where this road is leading. Let me say it in Job's words. Chapter 12, starting in verse 13. He says this, To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are God's. They're not mine. They're God's. What God tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man God imprisons cannot be released. If God holds back the waters, there is drought. If God releases those waters, they devastate the land. To him belongs strength and victory, the deceived and the deceiver are both his. And that has to be enough for us. That has to be enough. Rest there. Remain there. Joseph did. Daniel did. David did. Isaiah did. Because it's there, in that understanding of God's reign in our life, that is the location of our solace, of our perseverance, of our hope. Use your disappointment in other people to lead you to the kindness and the constancy of God. 
Because if we, if Joseph discovered anything in his life, he discovered that people would let him down, but God would remain faithful with him. Remember we said, I said, remember this, in all of the bad moments of Joseph's life, the text is very clear, God was with Joseph in those moments. In the pit, when he was sold into slave, in the pit of a dungeon cell, God was with him. Whenever he was risen to the highest place in Pharaoh's house, whenever he was ruling over his brothers and was their savior, God was with him. So quit relying on man. Isaiah says, stop relying on man who has breath in his nose just like you do. Instead, believe in God who has everlasting breath in which all other little breaths originate. We're talking about the but, the B-U-T's, the closed doors, the moments that we feel betrayed and let down, the detours in our life, and we will see it all over our life. From a politician who will say everything he can to get people to elect him. But then whenever he's in office, will the people who elected him will become pawns in his game. To the market and businesses who care more about bottom lines and being in the black than they do the environment, than they do their employees, than sometimes they even do their customers. And the church is not immune to the harsh reality of people's cruelty. Pastors, ministers, clergy have left abused victims in their wake. People will fail you. They will disappoint you. They will leave you hanging out to dry. Let that drive you to God, who is faithful to you despite it all. Jeremiah 17, he talks about what happens when a person relies in people or a person relies in God. And he does a little comparison here. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5, he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come from it. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. It doesn't say heat won't come. It says it doesn't fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Isaiah will say it a different way. He says, learn to wait upon the Lord and you'll be given wings like the wings of eagles. You will run and you will not grow weary. Which I ran this morning and I was very weary when I was running this morning. So that sounds pretty good to me. To have perseverance to get through the tragedies that come in your life because detours are a guarantee to those who walk faithfully with God. Joseph understood that reality in his life. That trust in God does not mean detours will not exist, but instead that God's presence will be with him in the detours. And that his timing is always perfect. We're not promised a smooth road. We're promised to end up in the right destination. 
with the road that we're on. So no matter the detour, we walk faithfully through it because we know that detour is not our final destination. We keep our eyes up. We do it as a church. We do it as the body of Christ. And whenever we see somebody around us who is on a bumpy road, we help them out. We love them well. We stay faithful to God when the world seems to be shrinking and burning around us. And we keep our eyes locked on where our destination is. A restoration of all things. I want to end with this poem by Ruth Culkin titled In the Morning. Everybody stand with me for this, for this poem and this prayer. Stretch out those legs. Maybe this poem's for you. Maybe it's just for me this morning. It says this, Today, Lord, I have an unshakable conviction, a positive, resolute assurance that what you have spoken is unalterably true. But today, Lord, my sick body feels stronger and the stomping pain quietly subsides. Tomorrow, If I must struggle again with aching exhaustion, with twisting pain, until I am breathless, until I am utterly spent, until fear eclipses the last vestige of hope, then Lord, then grant me the enabling grace to believe without feeling, to know without seeing, to clasp your invisible hand and wait with invincible trust for the morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the morning. God, we're not guaranteed a morning in this life, but the morning that is the final destination in eternity with you. Father, we keep our eyes like Joseph locked on your presence in the detours, your presence on the rough road. And we keep our eyes locked on the destination that we are headed. God, we don't shy away from detours. We don't try to return to comfort. We recognize that this is a reality of being a follower of you. That you haven't guaranteed smooth path, but you guaranteed we're on the right path. So God, we praise you for that as we keep our eyes locked on the person named Jesus who didn't require a cost for us to be forgiven, who gave it freely to those who both despised him and who followed him and yet failed. Father, I don't know where everybody is in this room. I don't know where their heart is. I don't know where their life is. I don't know about the detours and all the details. They do. They are in the prison. They are a year and a half into their two years, and they are waiting for an open door. And God, it may come, it may not. But I pray that they will have confidence in your presence in their life. I pray that they will recognize that with you they have everything. Without you they have nothing. God, help us. Wherever we are on our path, whatever road we are on, whatever detour we're chasing our way down, God, that we will seek you and find you as you have promised. God, help us reach that destination, a faithfulness like Joseph. And we give this all to you. 
In the name of our Savior Jesus, who gave it all for us. In Jesus' holy name, the church said, Amen.